this afternoon, I'd like to talk about something that's very basic, one of our fundamental beliefs. And, and maybe in one sense you might think, well, we're almost to Passover, so we need Passover sermons. But this is something I think that is relevant at all times, and whether we look at the, the events of 2020 or what's going on today, and it doesn't matter, that what God has put in place in his creation is important for all of us to consider God, how God has chosen to work with mankind is important for all of us to understand. He has not revealed his purpose, his plan to the masses. He's chosen to reveal that only to very few individuals, very select individuals down through the millennia. And there are very few of us today that understand that. And within the limited number that he has called and worked with over this time, He has consistently used a rather simple structure to work with mankind and to support the work that he is doing, that he has been doing. That structure is hierarchical government, top-down government, as we would call it. It's something he has put in place. God's form of government is reflected throughout the history of his work with uh, the individuals that he's called, and also with all of mankind, and it's also reflected in the major elements of his creation. We can see that, and we'll be going through that. Again, this is one of our fundamental beliefs of how God's government is implemented. We we talk about church government, and that's it. It's fine, but I also think we should consider it God's government in the church is how he has chosen to work with mankind. So this afternoon, we want to review that government, how it's structured, how it's reflected in his works. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 2 to begin. And we'll be looking at four areas in which we see this hierarchical government displayed and validated in how he's worked with, with mankind. And the first area is that of the family structure. First area is that of the human family structure. So in Genesis chapter 2, after God has created Adam, he says in verse 18, and the eternal God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him, someone like him, similar to him, and someone who can be a helper, someone who can work with him in a comparable way, complementary way. And then in verse 21, And the eternal God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the eternal God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, Now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken, she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God created Adam and Eve, and they were married. He talks about a man leaving his mother and father and being joined to his wife. Now, they were the first two human beings, but he was pointing out that there were going to be other individuals down through time, and there would be the families, and the man should leave 
his family, his family and parents, and then be joined to his wife. Then let's go on over to Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll see this structure that God put in place in his family. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24 for now. Ephesians 5, verse 22. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So, how is the church supposed to be subject to Jesus Christ? In every way, in everything. We ask him to inspire and guide Everything that we do as a work, and we are to submit to that will as he reveals that to us. So it tells us here that the husband then is the head of the wife in the same way, and the wife should submit to that government that he's put in place in the same way, in everything. Not Certainly not in disobeying any of God's laws, but in everything, if you will, administrative and what's good for the family and the decisions that are made. God says someone has to be the final decision maker, and that should be the husband. But notice in verse 25, when we think about the fact that the husband is the head of the house, how is he to be that? And this is not germane to the structure per se, except that the government that God puts in the, in, in the family, in the home, he's also telling the husband how to manage that government. He says here in verse 25, husbands... Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So there's a reminder even in that government that the head of the house is to administer that government in a matter of love, a matter of concern and welfare and love for those individuals, his wife and his children. So just as Christ loved the church, so again, as I mentioned if Christ is, 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 we're supposed to be subject in the church to Christ, then in everything, then the husband, to be respected and to be honored in that position, also has the responsibility of being the kind of head that is worthy of respect, worthy of following God's way of life, and that the wife can then, if you will, be submissive to the government that he's put in place. Over in First Peter, Chapter 3, in First Peter chapter 3, Peter's scriptures resonate with those of Paul's, of Paul. In chapter 3 of First Peter, in verse 1, it says, Wives, likewise... Be submissive to your own husbands. And likewise, referring back to verse 18, where it's talking there about servants being submissive to those that are their masters. And so he adds that he says, and likewise, the wives then should be submissive to their own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Again, just a reminder of the influence that any one of us 
can have by a good example on someone else. And especially a comment, a comment there about the wife, the kind of influence she can have on a husband. Now, we know that God has to call us to have our minds opened. But to have that mind opened, it might, sometimes that opening is through the example someone else sets. And the wife can have a great influence on an unbelieving husband as an unbelieving, uh, believing husband can have on an unbelieving wife. I've seen that in, in my ministry. Uh, when one gentleman came into the church, fairly young, by himself, he would bring his children, but his wife never came. And within a few months, his wife started coming to church. And after coming to church for a good while, she asked about baptism. And part of the questioning for this counseling for baptism is, well, why do you want to do this? You know, just, just to make some sort of arrangements or affiliation at home. And, and the comment was, no, no, uh, there's something to this way of life. You should have known my husband before he came into church. Uh, because he had changed so greatly that his wife then recognized that there was something to this truth, this way of life. And, of course, the word here, we're talking about what can happen to a, in a marriage where the wife is submissive as God instructs. So that without a word, without being pushed, without being cajoled into uh, cooperating with the truth, that this, this husband may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And the word here for fear is phobos. And it can mean fear, but the better rendering of it is respect or reverence. Not like reverence we do for God. We don't revere human beings in the same way we revere God. But nonetheless, a respect and a reverence for the position that the husband holds in the home. And then verse 4 explains, but it says here, rather, uh, verse 5 says, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. When we think of adornment, we usually think about how we dress, what clothes we put on, how we, you know, comb our hair, etc. But in verse 4, it talks about here that this, this, the wife, this incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This adornment was, is the right frame of mind, the right kind of submissiveness to the government that God has placed in the home. God had put that government there. He honors that government. When husbands, as their role, handle that responsible responsibility appropriately, God blesses that. When wives fulfill their responsibility appropriately, God blesses that as well and makes for the right kind of happy home. In Exodus 20, I won't turn there, but Exodus 20, verse 12, giving one of the, one of the commandments about the government in the home, he says to our children that they should honor their parents. The fifth commandment, how children are to honor the government that God has put in the home and in And Paul talks about this back in Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, 
says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So, again, the government in the home, the government of God, reflected here not only the responsibilities given to the husband, responsibilities given to the wife, and also the expectations and guidance commandments even to children to follow and, and instruct and obey their parents and honor them and cooperating with them. The family is the basic unit of society. And God put a government, established a line of authority in the home so that the family could operate the way he intended. All right, point number two. A little more time on this one. Point number two is seeing God's government in the angelic realm. God's government in the angelic realm. Let's turn back to Daniel chapter 8. We'll note that there are three angels. As we go through this, there are three angels that are named. Here in Daniel chapter 8, verse 16 makes reference here, middle of a thought. It says, I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so the angel Gabriel is a messenger. He's given the responsibility of delivering this message. And over and over in chapter 9, chapter 9, verses 21 through 23, Breaking in again in the middle of a, of a thought, referring to Daniel, who said, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, earlier in, we read part, chapter 8, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed of me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come forth to give you skill to understanding, or to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Of course, the, the succeeding verses talk about the 70 weeks prophecy, a major prophecy uh, about the end time especially, and looking forward down through history. And he delivers this major prophecy. Daniel is given this, or Gabriel given the job of delivering that, that message. And a couple other places. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 11. It's talking about Zecharias who is there doing his his uh, priestly duties, and Zechariah is married to uh, Elizabeth. They're elderly. They have no children. But here in verse 11, it says, An angel of the eternal, or the Lord, appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. 
for your prayer is heard. I don't think it says anywhere prior to this that uh, there's no record that Zechariah had prayed about this, but he obviously had, and, and, uh, certainly understandable. And he says, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So again, a vital message being delivered here to someone that God had chosen for a special function, for special responsibility. Then in verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Here is a messenger that has a very high position in God's at God's throne. He goes, I stand in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you in bringing you these glad tidings. I brought you good news. However, but behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. He had the authority authority to uh, give a certain amount of correction to Zacharias and tell him that he was going to be mute for a period of time. And here he has the power to render this judgment. Then later in chapter 1 as well, Luke, uh, here we go over to verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when I saw him, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So again, we find this account where Gabriel, as this special angel, and being in the presence of God, is given this privilege of bringing a great message to Mary about Jesus Christ being begotten and being born. So here's an angel, of great, again, of great stature. So Gabriel is named. Also, let's turn back to Isaiah 14, and we'll look at the account of a second angel. Isaiah chapter 14. Verse 12, Isaiah 14, verse 12. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. So a name is given. We find out what kind of individual this angel is or this this Lucifer is. How you are cut down to the ground. You weakened the nations. You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. So he's, he's not in heaven. He's going to attempt to go to heaven. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. He has this throne of position. And he's going to go above the stars of God. 
I also will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Clouds on the earth. He's going to go from the earth up to, it says here, he's going to descend into heaven with his throne. And he says, I will be like the most high. Lucifer is named. And of course, he's then cast down to the ground. And he has his throne, of again, a great position, but that position and his throne is on earth. Corresponding account over in Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, verse 14. And again, we're talking about Lucifer. The account here, beginning in verse 14, says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. Again, a very great position, an honored position at the throne of God. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till the iniquity, or till iniquity was found in you. And by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence. You were filled with violence within. So trading can be rendered traffic as well as merchandise, I think, in the old King James. But a matter of his activities as a result of the things you were doing and the trading, whether that be, as we'll see with the other angels, and uh, talking to them, whatever he said, but you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. I took you away from that position. No longer were you there at the throne of God. In verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom. For the sake of your splendor, I cast you to the ground. Back to the earth, I laid you before kings that they may, might gaze at you. So God took care of Lucifer's rebellion, of course, as we know, became Satan. Let's turn over to Revelation 12 to look at that same individual. Revelation chapter 12 reveals something to us about him. Verse 3 of Revelation 12, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So he's responsible for one-third of them, one-third of the angels. Talks about stars, often representing angels. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Where Satan was out to destroy God's plan and destroy Jesus Christ in the church as soon as he could. Then we pick it up in verse 9. And so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So one-third of the angels, again, a position of great responsibility. Apparently, 
Lucifer had one-third of the angels under his authority, under his structure, under his government, under his responsibility. But the angels were cast out. And the third individual, third angel that is named, let's turn back to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. Verse 7 refers here to Daniel having a vision. And I, Daniel, in verse 7 of chapter 10, says, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. So here's the vision that Daniel is, that, uh, Daniel is having. And pick it up in verse 10. He says, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. He literally was down on the floor, facing, face down, and had his hands out on the floor. But this angel is, says, said to him, uh, this person talking to him said to him, Oh, Daniel, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling, and he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now, here this uh, this angel that's come to Daniel is not named, because he said in uh, 21 days withstood me, but behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. And that's worthy of, of note as we go into the, a couple of more scriptures as to why that, that matters. That here is an angel, has a certain amount of power. But whoever this, this prince of the kingdom of Persia was able to withstand him for what we would call, what we know as three weeks. And he was not able to complete his mission and Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help him. So let's turn over to Jude. This short chapter book of Jude. Verse 9. Which helps us understand Michael being a chief prince. In verse 9 it talks about, it says, Yet Michael, the archangel... Now, the term archangel is only appears in two places, here and also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Gabriel and Lucifer are not referred to as archangels, literally, in any scripture that I could find. But here Michael is called an archangel. In contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring him bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So they were, there was contention. There was a a bit of a battle going on between the devil and Michael. And it would appear that Michael said, I didn't, we wouldn't bring an accusation against him. But nonetheless, this battle was going on. And in order to win that, that, that battle, he says he invoked the authority of Jesus Christ. 
talked about here, the Lord rebuke you. It would appear that Michael did not have the authority to just push Satan aside. He invoked Jesus Christ's name. Michael the archangel relies upon the power of Jesus Christ in order to protect the body of Moses. So, think about that for a moment. There was an angel that resisted the angel was sent to Daniel. And that angel had to, uh, then we waited on after three weeks, waiting for Michael to come. And Michael had more authority to push that, the prince of the, uh, the kingdom of Persia, aside so the first angel could get through with his message to, to Daniel. So it would appear here that this Michael certainly had authority to push that angel, the, the uh, uh, bad angel, the demon aside, but he didn't have the authority to necessarily push Satan aside. So there clearly there's lines of authority, lines of power, lines of government in the angelic realm. Let's turn over to Revelation 12 as we... Begin to close this, this portion of the, of the sermon. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. We were here a moment ago and we read verses 3 and 4 about Lucifer having the power and becoming Satan over one-third of the angels. But verse 7 tells us, And war broke out in heaven. So both what happened perhaps in the past and a prophecy of what will happen yet in the future and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. There are lines of government, lines of authority here between Satan and his angels, between Michael and his angels. As I said, Michael is the only one that's actually named an archangel, but he's one of the chief princes. Three angels are named. All three have great power. All three are given very special positions and special responsibilities. And certainly the inference is that all three were archangels as well as one-third of the angels that God created were under each one of them in responsibility and in, in duties. And those three archangels were responsible for their, uh, their powers and those angels that they were leading. So clearly, again, there is a hierarchy in the angelic realm of God's creation. So third point, or third area. This has to do with the family of God, if you will, and the spiritual structure within the family of God. We can see the government of God that he created. Let's turn back to begin this to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Just the one verse in this case, verse 28. Christ is, of course, preaching, talking to his disciples. Verse 28, he says, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. In other words, if you, if, if you clearly understood and you loved me, you would be happy about this. For he says, for my father is greater than I. And 
Maybe that's hard for the human mind to grasp. It is for me sometimes because God the Father is omnipotent and omniscient. He's perfect in all his ways. He can't lie. His self-discipline, if you want to call that, or his self-control is absolutely perfect. And yet, so is Christ. Christ was righteous. He never sinned, even as a human being. He was God when there was no time, along with what we now call the Father. But Christ says the Father is greater than I. Now, we don't know, we don't know how that, how that works. It's sort of like the same thing when he says, uh, Michael and his angels fought Lucifer, Satan, and his angels. Well, uh, how do how do angels fight? Uh, you know, we've all seen Star Wars, or so, you know, you wonder. There's power, there's authority to be to be controlled, and God says angels can fight. That's happened. But the, and then here, just another matter of spiritual understanding is the Father is greater than Jesus Christ. Over in chapter ten, or back in chapter ten. Verses 29 and 30. Verse 29 says, My Father, who has given them to me, referring to those that were following him, is greater than all. He is all-powerful. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So when God has chosen us, chosen his servants, and we choose to follow him, and we serve him, that our salvation is really between him and me, between him and you. That there's not some other power that can take you away if you don't, uh, if you don't, if you stay close to him. He said, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. When we stay close to God, there is no way to fail being in his kingdom. And then Christ says, I and my Father are one. And Christ also pointing out that no one can take them from me. That's what he told Father in in his prayer later on. He says here, the Father is greater than all. And Christ and the Father are one. They're one in righteousness. They're one in perfect character. They're one in being omnipotent. Both of them have those characteristics. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, which gives us a, a taste of government, not only in this point, but also even what I discussed in the first point. In verse, verse 3, just one verse, Paul writes, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. We all have someone over us. And the head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Christ even said, I came to do my Father's will. I speak the words that my Father inspired me to speak. He was totally submissive to his Father as a human being here on this earth and has been that way for eternity. All of us have a leader all of us have one, have someone over us. And God says here, it's clearly God the Father is supreme. In Matthew chapter 28, 
Matthew chapter 28. Verses 16 through 18. Familiar scriptures here in the account of Christ going back, going just before he goes back to heaven after he's been resurrected. Verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. And sort of an aside from uh, a tangent from the point at hand, he says, But some doubted. After 40 days of the miracles that Christ performed, he said some still doubted. They weren't, they weren't quite sure what was happening. They weren't quite sure all the things they were supposed to do, perhaps. Couldn't quite figure it out. It was still beyond the human mind. They didn't have God's spirit yet. But And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. That God the Father had once again restoring him to this position of rulership and full responsibility for his creation and full responsibility for being, as we said earlier, the head of the church and the executor to carry out all of the plans that the two of them had put together sometime in, in past eternity in working out the plan to expand and to grow their family immensely. But all authority was given to him by the Father. The Father had the authority to do with the power to share and give that to him. Let's turn back to Hosea because the uh, responsibility of that kingdom, Christ is going to come back and set up that kingdom and the government will be the king of kings and lord of lords. We find here in Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, a part of that government that will be there in the world tomorrow. In verse 5 it says, And afterward the children of Israel, referring to the millennium, and afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, they shall fear the Lord, his goodness, and his goodness in the latter days. So David is going to be a part of that government in the world tomorrow. And we know there are plenty of scriptures talk about David being given that responsibility. That once the kingdom of God comes and that government is established on the earth, David will be a major part of that government. And in Matthew chapter 19, as we've Rehearsed on many occasions, Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 and 28. Verse 27 of Matthew 19. Then Peter answered and said to him, talking to Christ, To see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And a nice way of saying, uh, what's the return on our investment? What do we get out of all of this sacrifice that we've made as your disciples? What do we have to look forward to enjoying, to sharing? And so Jesus said to them in verse 28, Assuredly, 
I say to you that in the regeneration, in the resurrection, when you're made spirit beings, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. David, given the responsibility of being over Israel, and these the disciples, the apostles, given responsibility to work with one of the tribes. There are plenty of other scriptures that you and I uh, count on in looking at the parables that are there that are based on the sacrifices you and I make. We're going to be given certain responsibilities in that government. We'll be like God. We'll be like Jesus Christ. We'll be eternal. But we forever, for all eternity, are going to be part of that hierarchy. Somewhere down the line, below God, below Jesus Christ, below the, uh, David, below the apostles. Some of those positions are already taken. But you and I have the opportunity to earn, if you will, put it that way, to produce fruit, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ so that we qualify for positions of rulership and leadership. We're going to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow, part of that hierarchy, part of that government that God will put in place for all of mankind at that time, and of course we'll go right on in to eternity. Okay, point number four. A little bit different wording here, longer, but the organizational structure dealing with mankind. The organizational structure dealing with mankind, and in particular Israel as an example. Just I'll make reference to three or four scriptures here in talking about this point. Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, if you want to write it down. Matthew 23, 35, and also Hebrews 11, verse 4. Both those scriptures discuss the fact that Abel was righteous, one of the very first human beings, that Abel was righteous. He knew God. And even though, unfortunately, what happened, but he did serve God, considered he was righteous. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 and 24, he talks about Enoch being one who walked with God. So there was a, a Christian, a righteous individual who walked with God. Also in Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, makes reference here in Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9, that Noah was a just man, and Noah walked with God. So here was someone at the very close of that very violent and unrighteous society that permeated the world with violence and unrighteousness. In the midst of all of that, Noah was a just man, and he walked with God. In Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, makes reference to Noah being a preacher of righteousness, someone who attempted, perhaps, to preach God's truth to those that would listen, and the only ones that would pay any heed were those of his immediate family. But he was a preacher of righteousness. And we surmise about where that ark was and 
how much rain there may or may not have been before the flood. And maybe he was building this ark out in the middle of, uh, I won't say nowhere, but somewhere away from a great body of water, perhaps. And could easily be the object of ridicule. Why are you doing that? Well, it's going to rain. Well, how much rain are you expecting, Noah? Uh, anyway, and warning them, being a preacher of righteousness, that there was a problem with the society, but being the object of, of ridicule in many ways, I have no doubt about that. But he was a, his job was to preach God's truth. It would appear that God kept the truth alive from the very beginning, working with individuals, that somewhere on this earth there was someone who knew what God was doing, what, what God expected of mankind. And as the world moved further and further away from God's way of life, someone was still there apparently preaching, apparently working with those that were around, and maybe sharing God's truth. And he kept the truth alive, and apparently by singularly choosing certain individuals, select individuals at at any given time, so the truth did not die out. That's what we hope and what we think. But God kept the truth alive in the world. And then, of course, down after the flood, down through time, eventually he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to implement his plan for salvation for mankind. And then after Israel was taken into captivity for well over 200 years into Egypt, the descendants of of, uh, of Jacob, or Israel, as his name was changed, and they were in captivity, and then in due time, God chose Moses to lead Israel to the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He chose a man to lead his nation. So let's turn back to Exodus 18. And after Moses has led Israel out of Egypt, and he's given the responsibility of teaching them, working with them, a lot of people. There were no telephones. Uh, there were no. There was no email. There was no internet. So how do you communicate with two or three or four million people? and maintain some sort of oversight. Of course, he's trying to do that in a, a difficult way. And what he's trying to do, that, uh, I wonder sometimes, uh, Moses apparently was a, a well-respected, we'd call maybe a general in Egypt, and he had officers under him, and he would command them, and they would come and go and do things that had to be done. But here in dealing with Israel, he, he was not carrying out his mission that way. But here in in verse 13 of Exodus 18, they've, Israel has exited Egypt, and so his father-in-law comes, says, and it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Moses explained to him, I'm trying to direct Israel and teach the people. They come and ask me what uh, uh, to inquire of God, and so they have a difficulty, and so I make the judgment. In the last part of verse 16, I make known the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said, the thing you do 
is not good. Uh, thing you do, it's, it's really not wise. Uh, Moses, that's part of verse 18, you are not able to perform it by yourself. And so he says in verse 19, listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach it, you shall teach them the statutes and the laws. And show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. And moreover, you shall select from the people. Notice who he, he is given advice to select. Able men, such as fear God. Men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Those, a brief description there of the qualifications of the ones that Moses was to choose, to, to be uh, part of the government in Israel, those qualifications pretty much permeate the entire Bible as far as what God expects of those that are to govern and guide his people. He goes on, verse 22, And let them judge the people at all times, and they'll judge the small matters. When the difficult ones really difficult, then they'll bring these things to you, and you can take care of it. Verse 23, and if you do this thing, and God so commands you, in other words, I'm giving you advice, but if God confirms that this is what you ought to do, then you will be able to endure. It will be good for you physically, and all this people will go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said, and Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, as he said, over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Because God had confirmed that was a wise thing to do. And what we had there was, in essence, that uh, we had a, a civil and a spiritual government, a top-down government that God had placed over all of Israel. So over in Numbers 12, what, how well did that government work? And did uh, some individuals take opposition to this? In Numbers chapter 12, read verses 1 through 11. And again, you're very familiar with this story, but I think it, if we analyze it maybe a little bit differently, we'll understand just how important government is because everything, again, we've seen so far from the family, from the angelic realm, from the God family itself as now and into the kingdom that is hierarchical, We'll see how important it is for the government that God has placed in the human realm. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now that's all it says there. It doesn't give us any detail. All we know is that was the, for them that was an excuse to bring some sort of accusation against Moses. Now Josephus has some speculation on why that was the case. It doesn't say that wasn't the case. It was the case. And when and how that happened, we don't know. Various speculations about it, but it is speculation. But uh, again, uh, you look at the commentaries, uh, you can find a variety of speculations. And again, Josephus has a, has a comment on it, on what that may have been. But that's all the detail that God reveals about this. And so they said... 
has the, has the eternal indeed spoken only through Moses. Now, so the accusation made was about a physical matter. So what was behind that? What was the motive for even bringing that up? And again, it doesn't mean, it doesn't say that they went out any, uh, other people. Apparently all the, the, the account sort of indicates this was between Miriam and Aaron. And so they said, has the eternal spoken only through Moses? Has, has he not spoken through us also? So there's some, maybe that tells us about the motive behind the accusation. They were maybe not in the limelight or the spotlight as much as they wanted to be. It says then the eternal heard it. <laughs> of course he heard it. <laughs> he hears everything. He knows what's going on. And he heard it. And just to point out the contrast of how unfair and unjust this was, we have this parenthetical insert here. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. That's that's pretty all-encompassing. Moses didn't even want the job. (laughs) He didn't want to be the spokesperson. He wanted, God finally was a little bit upset with him because he said, okay, I'll give you Aaron. I'll tell you what to say, and you tell Aaron, and Aaron can do, he can be the mouthpiece. Moses didn't want it. Then it says, suddenly the eternal said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Uh, I, w- I won't try to say what I think happened, <laughs> but I don't think that God was whispering here. I'll put it that. He said to them, come out, you three. To the tabernacle of meeting. Uh, just a thought, perhaps. How many of us as children have ever had one of our parents say to us, Come here. Uh, you know that something's wrong. <laughs> this is not going to end well. <laughs> when, when, they, when, you knew, when mom or dad say that, or just dad gives you this look and just... Signal, come on over here. Let's let's go to the back room or the old saying, let's go out behind the shed. Uh, Suddenly, he says this, come out, you three. I think that it was a very emphatic command that came came over to them. Then the eternal came down in the pillar of cloud. Of course, they came out and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. Can you you envision this a little bit? very small steps. I mean, children do sometimes. When they're in trouble, they just kind of stumble forward. When, what, when they know they're in trouble, they both went forward and he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the eternal, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. In other words, I work with a variety of people down through time in certain ways, but not so with my servant Moses. And God says here, it makes a statement that it's, I think, deeply meaning, meaningful in light of what Miriam and Aaron had said in verse 1, verse 2. He says, not with my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. Now, was Moses perfect? No. But he was practicing God's way of life. He was God's servant. He was doing what God commanded him to do. We know later on he did make a mistake. It had dire consequences. 
But he's held, God says here, he's faithful in all my house. Moses is above reproach. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the eternal. Very special privilege given to him. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? How dare you take it upon yourself to criticize my servant? He's responsible to me. He's my servant, and he is faithful in all my house. Can you not recognize that, the things that have been happening over the last weeks that I've been administering this, these things through Moses? Why were you not afraid to speak against my, service, my servant Moses? So the anger of the Eternal was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us. Recognizing what they had done, that even that kind of criticism, that kind of judgment in their minds, he recognized there was sin in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Now, it doesn't say here that there's no indication there that nothing, anything, anything happened to Aaron. It did happen to Miriam. We don't know why, except maybe, maybe Aaron, Miriam was the uh, first one to talk to Aaron and talk about how unfair this was. I don't, it doesn't, we don't know. But it was God's way of making clear to both of them there are consequences for criticizing and for judging unfairly those that God places in authority. Government matters. It always matters. But in some ways it only it matters most when we disagree. <laughs> Recognizing that to those in, in government make decisions that may not be our purview. So God was upset with them and judged them accordingly. So they, they had no rationale in reality, no legitimate rationale for doing this. Maybe it was a, verse 2 indicates it was provoked by jealousy. Suddenly this happened, and God held them accountable for doing that. In number 16, and I won't spend a lot of time there, but let's turn over to chapter 16, and I'll, I'll read a part of it. Verses 1 through 35 to read the entire account that is referred to quite often about the story of Korah. In verses 24 through 26, we find that uh, Korah, being a Levite, and also Dathan and Abiram are Reubenites, and they're in cahoots together. And God is going to show the difference between those that Moses has behind him and those that have rebelled and, and judged him unfairly for his responsibilities. And God says in verse 26, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. We find in the account then through uh, verses 28 through 32 of what's going to happen because of what they've done, and they didn't relent. And God, the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all of those households. And then the fire in verse 35, fire came out from the eternal and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. 
major leaders as well of Israel who had decided to follow Korah's rebellion. So God very much backed up the government he had put in place dramatically, dramatically showing who he was working, who, who, through whom he was working. And of course, as we go down through the history of Israel under Moses and Joshua, eventually we come to the period of Judges. And again, through the book of Judges, we find where God time and again would work with one man, one person to bring Israel out of captivity. They'd sin, go back into captivity. He'd raise up someone to lead them out of captivity. And we finally then come out of the Judges to, to Samuel, the, uh, Example of especially being a judge, and we turn over to turn over to to First uh, Samuel chapter three. First Samuel chapter three, verses nineteen through twenty-one. So Samuel grew when the Eternal was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. That means he backed up everything that he used Samuel to share with Israel and to lead Israel and whatever whatever duties he said should be done, things that were to be done, he backed up every one of them. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Eternal. He was God's specially chosen one, and the Eternal appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Eternal. Chapter 7, verse 15. Samuel 7, for Samuel chapter 7, or chapter, yeah, 7 verse, in verse 15. 7, 15. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Samuel was specially chosen to be the leader of Israel, and quite a story behind that. Over in 2 Kings, Second Kings, Chapter 2, here we have the account of the passing of position of leadership from Elijah to Elisha. And I won't read all of chapter 2, but read verses 9 through 15. It says, and so it was when they had crossed over, this is referring to Elijah and Elisha, that Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I may do for you before I am taken away from you. They, they both knew this was about to happen shortly. And Elisha said, please let, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And Elijah responded, well, if you see what happens, then so be it. Verse 11, and they continued on and talked. And suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it, and it says here in the middle of the verse, he saw him no more. But in verse 13, he also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the eternal God of Elijah? And it said, I should be able to do what Elijah had done. He had struck the river in previous verses, and the water and the river stopped. And he said, where is the eternal God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. 
In verse 15, and when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, this from a distance, they were able to witness what happened. They said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed, bowed to the ground before him, showing respect for that. Back in 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 and 16. 1 Kings 19, verse, 6, uh, verse, uh, verse 15. Then the Eternal said to him, he's talking about, he's talking to, to uh, Elijah, Go on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael, a king over, as king over Syria. And also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. Elijah knew what was coming, that his tenure as a prophet of God was about to end. And, of course, we see that recorded, as I just read over in Second Kings, that that lead responsibility as, I would say, the leading prophet, there were sons of the prophets in various places. If you read the account in Kings, that position of responsibility was given from one person to another. In the book of Acts, you can just example again where the deacons are chosen. The apostles are the ones who appointed the deacons. We've heard recently a good many times about Acts 15 where the matter of circumcision was decided, decided by those, by the apostles, and by those that God had put in responsible positions of leadership. So, in closing, let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, because I made reference to the leadership in the human realm, and of course, certainly as we come down to the church today, we find that God has given the same kind of government in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 through 16. And he gave himself, or he himself gave some to be apostles. Christ did. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And we teach this is a hierarchy. These are positions within the ministry. Why did he do that? How, why do we even need ministers? You go back to Romans, we find the account where if you, you said, uh, how can someone understand? He said, well, you, you can't without a preacher. And how should there be a preacher if he's not sent? God picks and chooses certain ones to carry out responsibilities. And Christ himself appoints them this way. Why do we need that? For the equipping, equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for preaching the gospel, for doing the work, for the edifying of the body of Christ, so that we all understand more perfectly how to become part of Christ's body. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. That's a big stride forward to become united the way God wants us to be. Come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to mature Christians, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is the goal. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. 
speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. That's why we have sermons, so many sermons on basic understanding God's truth, so that these things are written in our minds in a way that they would never be removed. We don't take for granted any of the truth we've been given. That's what the ministry is there for. God had put the ministry in place today to take care of his work and take care of his church. He has always worked this way. From the family structure, from the angelic realm, he put in place certain government. It's what he has within the spirit God family, from God on down to Christ and through the others. And why he has put this kind of government in place in his church. It is God's government in the church. And all of us benefit by understanding that, realizing this is God's church and it's God's government. I would refer you to Mr. Weston's recent article in the Living Church News about love and government. Those two go together. Right government is administered through the love of God. That government is part of God's love for his creation. It's reflected in the family, human family, in the angelic realm, in the godly, God's, God's family, and how he has dealt with mankind down through from Adam all the way down to us. And you and I are privileged to be called to share in that government, to learn how it works and be a part of it for all eternity. There's a lot more to be said about government, another time, another place perhaps, but understanding how God put his, his government in place in the church, now he's worked with mankind is always very important for us to understand. It's one of our fundamental beliefs.